0: Would you please join me in a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for your scriptures, especially Ecclesiastes, how it points us to meaning. Lord, I ask that you would help me as I preach and each one of us to ask the big questions and find them answered in you. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So there are different kinds of sabbaticals, different purposes. Sometimes people take a sabbatical to go off and do like an advanced study kind of thing or write a book or or sometimes people go off because they know they're going to change ministries and so it's a time of just kind of clearing the smoke. Mine was one that was focused on rest and reflection. And so I I wanted to do three things with this summer. Uh, One is I, I wanted to visit a bunch of other churches, especially Anglican churches, because I'm always busy on Sunday mornings. So I got to see 10 different uh, Sundays, different experiences, which was really helpful. Um, I also just personally worked on some diet and exercise stuff, personal habits, kind of cleaning up some of those things. We'll see if it remains now that I'm back in the office. Um, But probably the biggest thing was to step back from ministry and, and slow down a bit and reflect. I thought I'd much rather work on other people's problems than my own soul. And so, it's, it's a hard kind of work to do that, to be quiet, to have solitude. It's tough. And slowing down, what I started to see was how fast life is moving. When we were parents of young kids, the saying was, the days drag on, but the years fly by. And I found that to be true in my experience this summer. I was thinking of that um, passage from, from Psalm 90, where it says, the years of our life are 70 Or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. And then the psalmist in the words of Moses, it's called a psalm of Moses, says, Teach us to number our days, O Lord, that we might gain a heart of wisdom. What an interesting prayer, that we might gain a heart of wisdom. So, you know, I'm going to say something here that to some will sound ridiculous on both ends of this, but um, I feel old and then I turn 50 coming February. Now, to some of you, that sounds really young. To others, that sounds like I'm falling off the edge of eternity. I realize that's a perspective (laughs) thing. I understand that. But, you know, 50 is halfway to 100. And most people don't live that long. So middle age is not 50. That's more like 40, maybe. See, I'm in the danger zone already. So uh, we celebrated 26 years of marriage this week. Our kids are on the backside of college. We have a junior and senior in college. I've got way too many friends with cancer and one who just survived a heart attack. Like, those are existential situations where you start asking, what is life about? Where are we headed? What does this mean? So it was fitting to be kind of looking at Ecclesiastes and getting ready for this this new um, sermon series. Dallas Willard, one of my heroes, said that any person who wants to grow in spiritual maturity will make use of silence and solitude. Those two spiritual dis- disciplines will be part of that process. You just have to get alone and get quiet to start seeing what's going on in your soul. So I wonder about you. Have you been doing any of that introspective work or am I the only one that's, that's looking inward? It's easy to stay busy and not pay attention to what is going on in our soul. So um, there were a couple of questions generated by song lyrics, two in particular that bounced in my head all summer. One was from a John Mayer song, an older song, where he sings, Am I living it right? In other words, am I, am I doing this life correctly? I'm living my life, you get one, am I doing it right? In a good and right and righteous way. And then the other one was um, the question, Does anything remain after our life is gone? Does anything remain? And I'm thinking about that song, One Thing Remains, that we sing in here from time to time. Your love never fails, it never grows old, It never that song it never runs out, one thing remains. God's love remains. But I jump ahead there. Don't jump to the, to the solution just yet. Back up and stay in the pain of asking the question of what is the meaning of life. So we're going to study Ecclesiastes. Um, it's on page 551 or 53, I forget what it was, in the Pew Bible. I want to look at some of these verses specifically. And as you get there, um, I'm mindful that one pastor I heard preach on this said, you, you can only handle three or four sermons on Ecclesiastes because it's just too depressing. I disagree wholeheartedly, and we're going to do way more than three sermons on it. I think that it actually is really helpful, but it does require us to look at the emptiness of secular pursuits. In other words, pursuing goals apart from God, seeking things without God being in them and for him as the ultimate end and purpose. There's an emptiness to that, and what it does is it actually points us to the joy and the hope of the Christian message. And in that regard, it's not in any way despairing or too hard. It's actually great, quite joyful. So um, Ecclesiastes 5.18 is not dour in any way. It says um, a little bit later, the, the teacher says this. Let me, let me read something to you. It says, behold, I have seen to be good and fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. In other words, the hardship as well as the blessings, if lived in joy, are a great gift. And the writer says that. So this is not a book of like despair. It's actually a book that shows futility in some pursuits and says here is the way to live. It's giving us some real help. Now the very first question asked of this book is in verse three. The, the preacher, the teacher says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What do you gain? That's the question. And the, the big problem is you will die, death will come to all of us, and history will erase each one of us. I don't care how important you were in this life, give it enough time, and history will forget you. Death and history are the problems. Now, Jesus is saying, they've, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly, so it's not dour, and there is hope here. Leo Tolstoy, the, um, the famous author of War and Peace and a number of other books, in his book, Confession, said, it was this question, what does man gain by his work? It was this question that drove me to the brink of suicide and then to Christianity. He says, his question was, what meaning is there in my life that my own inevitable death won't erase? That question drove him almost to the point of suicide. And then it drove him to Christ. And then he's writing in his confessions about how he became a believer. What does man gain from all the work? Now, given what he says in verse 2, the blunt statement in verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's really a rhetorical question in verse 3. The answer is nothing. What does man gain by all his striving? Nothing is the answer that he wants you to come to. Now, that's not the end of it, though. But I want to point out two important words that will keep coming back throughout all of Ecclesiastes. In fact, in the ESV, there's a footnote on these Hebrew terms. And sorry to go language on you here but we really do have to look at the language the word translated as preacher in the esv is the hebrew word koholet and preacher is not accurate in my opinion like what i'm doing preaching to you right now it's far more one person said it's like a seminar leader if you've ever been in advanced graduate studies where the the teacher is not the lecturer but but the Kohelet person is more like the seminar leader who will point you to certain things to help you formulate your thesis, and you go do the learning. They don't do the learning and just give it to you and you regurgitate it on papers. They say, consider this area of study over here. Look at it from this angle. Think about this. What if this was true? What would that mean? Formulate a thesis. Now go research it and then generate something. That's what this person is. The Kohelet, the preacher, it says, capital P, is trying to say to you and I, look at the secular world, life under the sun, the best that humans can do apart from God. Look at this, look at this, look at this. And he's going to show how it doesn't add up. But hopefully you'll come to the conclusion and say, well, then what do we do? And then that will point us to the solution. So he's going to keep pointing at things that fail to satisfy your soul. That's what we're going to find in here. So that's an important word. The other one is hebel. The word translated here, vanity of vanities, like the highest of all vanity, holy of holies, king of kings, lord of lords. This is the greatest of vanity. But the word most literally means mist or vapor or breath. Vanity means more meaningless. But think about your breath for a minute on a cold morning. You see it, right? It's a physical thing that comes out. It's real. But it's very temporary, Before the next breath comes out, the first one is gone. And if you try to grab it, you can't catch it. So every time the word vanity comes up in ESV, think more concretely in terms of a breath on a cold morning or a mist or a fog. It's very temporary, and it can't be quite grabbed. It's ephemeral. It's fleeting. This has to be in our minds as we go through this. It's lacking a certain substance, and it's disappearing. It's elusive. Something like that. So... Gone fast, and you can't grasp it. And this is not the only place in the Bible where that idea uh, occurs. Um, For instance, Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 7 says, A voice says cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass." there it is Isaiah talking about how elusive life is how fleeting how thin so that's not just ecclesiastes it's it's all through the scriptures now let's look at the actual introduction here to this book in the very first chapter he says some things that are helpful verse 3 he says a generation goes and a generation comes we would normally say it the other way right some people come and go He says, go and come, because he's not the generation itself. He's standing outside of it, and he's looking. One generation comes on to the the scene of the world stage, and then it moves by. Here come the, the war generation, the builders, and then they go, and then the baby boomers come, and then they go, and Gen X comes, and then it goes, and the millennials come, and then it goes. He's looking from outside of the situation and saying, see, it's just one after another after another. It's fleeting. It's moving by. It's like this vapor, this breath. It's going quickly. Consider that. And then in verses 5, 6, and 7, he says, look at the earth, the physical earth. And he looks at the sun and the wind and the rivers. The sun, every day, rises and it sets. Of course, back then they were thinking the sun is going around. We know it moves in a different pattern. But from our vantage point, here comes day, night, day, night, over and over and over. The years go by. It just seems like it's endless. And then he says, consider the wind. The trade winds come, comes from one direction, goes the other way, but then it just keeps coming back around every year, the seasons. He's, it just, it's, not, it's somewhat static. It's not changing. The circle, the pattern, the rivers, they run down into the sea, and it doesn't fill up. Now, we know it's because it evaporates, it goes in clouds, and it rains back down. It's still that same cycle. He's looking at the physical earth and saying, it just keeps moving like a, well, I might say like a hamster wheel. It's just turning. The cycle of life, it just keeps going. It keeps going. And then in, in verse 8, which is a little bit Difficult to understand. It says, All man, all things are full of weariness. Man cannot utter it, speak. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The best interpretation I came up with on this has to do more with scientific inquiry. God has given us this incredible universe, and we have the task of living in it and stewarding it and exploring it, and it does point us to him. But it seems that every time we make some advance, we find three more questions, Every time there's a new scientific breakthrough, it doesn't solve the problem or exhaust it. It just opens up even more understanding on the macro level and the micro level. We cannot ultimately get it figured out, but we keep exploring. That's part of this cycle. We just keep learning about new things, and there will always be new things to learn about, says the teacher. He says, consider these things. And then he comes in verse 9 to the famous statement, almost exhaustively, there's nothing new under the sun. You've probably said it, you've heard it said for sure. But you might say, well, wait a minute, there are new breakthroughs. In fact, in our life, so many things have changed thanks to scientific advancements in technology. The smartphone, you can pick up your phone right now and call the other side of the world and talk to somebody in India. That's new. But Coalette would say, actually, that's not new. It's data and it's communication. There have always been ways to pass along information and there have always been ways to communicate. This is just another iteration of the same thing that's always been there and frankly did it solve problems it generated just as many as it solved nothing new under the Sun right he's saying consider is there really anything new or is it just a different iteration then the, then he comes to the the toughest verse verse 11 there is no remembrance of former things And the ESV footnote says or people things or people nor will these be of any remembrance or later things yet to be among those that are to come. So there's a generation coming, and there will be great people in that generation, and they will be forgotten as well. Death and history. Death will wipe you out. History will erase you. That's what he says here. It's interesting, you know, my big idea off this first chapter that I think we have to wrestle with is the idea that the universe, by God's appointment is arranged in such a way that it does not reward individual striving. If you try to say, God, you stay away. I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm going to be satisfied. I'm going to pursue things that will satisfy my soul. Everything will go against you. It will fight back. It will push back. All these things that the teacher is pointing to will say, good luck with that. The universe will not reward that. You were made for God and can only be satisfied in him. But people will keep trying it's interesting how death sometimes will give a really helpful and good perspective i have a quote here from steve jobs but before i read that let me read one from a scholar named uh, ian provin who wrote the new international version application commentary on ecclesiastes he says the universe is not designed to enable gain what gain is there by all our toil asked the the preacher Kohelet. the universe is not designed to enable gain to happen and those who attempt to fly in the face of reality can only ever know grief and frustration in the end. So here's Steve Jobs in a, in a biography. After he had, he's the guy that started Apple computers and all, all that stuff. He's got cancer, he's feeling very sick, he's, he knows he's dying. He says, I'm about 50 50 on believing in God. For most of my life, I've felt that there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. I like to think that something survives after you die. It's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and maybe a little wisdom, and it just goes away. So I really wanna believe that something survives, that maybe your your consciousness endures. And then he got quiet for a long time, said the interviewer, and he said, but on the other hand, perhaps it's like an on-off switch. Click, and you're off, gone. And he paused again and said, with a smile, Maybe that's why I never like to put on-off switches on Apple devices. There's something in us that is grasping for the eternal. We don't like the fact that this is all there is. The universe is pushing back against that idea of self-made man to make us consider God. And the sooner we figure that out, the better. So Kohelet is saying, consider, you can't do this life on your own. You will not succeed at it. Now, thankfully, he's saying, under the sun... He's looked at the world, In the he's, he's writing in the voice of King Solomon, who basically had everything you could imagine, you know, wealth, pleasure, wisdom. He had all, everything, everything the world could possibly go after, and the writer, who might have been Solomon, but probably wasn't, it doesn't matter, is, he's channeling that idea, and he's saying, looking under the sun, the best the world can offer, consider these things. Now we, on this side of that cross, and the resurrection are looking above the sun. We know there's a God who is above that, and he has actually entered into it. He has some things to say about it. The scriptures don't stop with Ecclesiastes. There is a New Testament that comes and fulfills these themes. So consider, for instance, the gospel reading today. Jesus says, if you want to save your life, you actually have to give it up and lose it. But if you try to cling on to it, you'll lose it. His invitation is, take up your cross daily and follow me, Jesus. What did Jesus do? He entered into this futile and broken universe and then redeemed it, and he did it by not hanging on to his life, but literally dying for us on the cross. And in so doing, he defeated death. Couldn't hold him down. On the third day, he rose to life. Death could not stop this God. And that the history books will never forget the cross. Forever. That will always be talked about. There are more people that know about it now than throughout history had ever heard of it. And there will keep being more and more people telling this story. It's not going away. History will not forget that. And death has not gotten the last word. The one who conquered death does. So there's this incredible hope that fulfills these themes. Jesus defeated death. And history will never erase the cross. And the question, is there anything new under the sun? With the exception of maybe the smartphone? Yeah, there is. Let me jump to the back of the book. You know, I'm in revelation here, there's a picture of the heavenly worship that goes on for all eternity. There's all these creatures, including angels, around this throne, and it says, "And they sang a new song, a new song, not one that was just like that it was before. It, they never talked about this before because it had never happened before. They sang a new song, and they are talking about Jesus, and they say, "Worthy are you to take the scroll, the scroll of all that's on history, past, present and future." And to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What God did in sending Jesus and what he did on that cross created a new song that will always be sung. There is actually something new under the sun. The one who was above the sun entered into this world and redeemed it. That's the that's the answer, that's the solution. Now, if you become a Christian, the Apostle Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. So there's something else that's new under the sun. People that come to faith in God become new creatures. They are being transformed from the inside out. That is a new thing as well. It's an incredibly new thing. So some application points quickly. One, to the spiritual seeker, to somebody who's open to spiritual things. They're kind of one foot in the secular society, one foot in religious thinking. You're kind of not sure. To you, I want to say, look closely at what this seminar leader, kohelet the preacher, is pointing to. Consider these things. Consider if what he's saying is actually what happens apart from God. And then come to God. Place your trust in Jesus. Experience the newness of life. The peace that surpasses understanding. These incredible promises that are in the New Testament for those that trust in God. Give him your heart and do it today. Or take as long as you need, but don't delay. The days just keep going by. Your life is going faster and faster. Come to Christ. Experience this promise. You're not going to get it figured out before you do. At some point, you just simply have to trust him and then experience it, and then he'll keep adding to your understanding over the years. Now, to the Christian, now this is a hard word. Stop hedging your bet. Stop hedging your bet about Jesus, trying to find ultimate satisfaction in worldly pursuits. Does your life, apart from a few churchy religious things and maybe giving some money, does it look qualitatively like the secular humanist down the street from you? Each pursuing your interests and hobbies, trying to find satisfaction and joy out of secular things, things that are not God's things for you. Uh, Somebody said it's like uh, Jesus as a mere fire insurance card. I've said the sinner's prayer, I know I'll go to heaven when I die, so now let me get busy living a worldly life like everybody else. I'm going to try as hard as I can to see if there's anything that will satisfy me. King Solomon tried everything, we'll see, in the coming weeks, and none of it did. Can you learn from that wisdom and say, okay, maybe there's a different way. You see, the universe is arranged by God to actually reward laying down your life, trusting in him, coming to him and saying, okay, God, how do I do this? The famous missionary that died trying to lead people to Jesus, Jim Elliott, um, had a quote that said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And Jesus is saying, if you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Do it the way Jesus did it. Now, I can't tell you personally what that's going to look like. I can tell you there's an abundant life in it. And every time I've done it, it does lead to a kind of peace And every time I've tried to satisfy myself with the secular pursuits, it has been frustrating and futile. So I want you to ask him personally, Jesus, what do I have to let go of today? What does my cross look like today? What thing am I trying to find as my functional savior apart from you? Show me what that is and give me the courage to lay it down, to put it to death. That's what we're invited to here. So I want to encourage you to serve God and not yourself. And that's what the preacher would have you do as well. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're in the deep end here, and it's the only place where we can find satisfaction. And so I pray that you would come and encourage us. I pray that you would show us your goodness that we've just sung about. I pray that you'd help us to trust you and to put our hope in you. And Lord, for anyone here this morning who has not given you their life, would you give them the gift of faith to trust you and let them experience the newness that comes from worshiping you. Lord, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.